Chapter thirty two of Babbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. Babbitt. By Sinclair Lewis. Chapter thirty two. One. His wife was up when he came in. You have a good time? She sniffed. I did not have a rotten time. Anything else I got to explain? George, how can you speak like that? Oh, I don't know what's come over you. Good Lord, there's nothing come over me. Why do you look for trouble all the time? He was warning himself. Careful, stop being so disagreeable. Of course she feels it, being left alone here all evening. But he forgot his warning as she went on. Why do you go out and see all sorts of strange people? I suppose you'll say you've been to another committee meeting this evening. Nope. I've been calling on a woman. We sat by the fire and kidded each other and had a whale of a good time, if you want to know. Well, from the way you say it, I suppose it's my fault you went there. I probably sent you. You did. Well, upon my word. You hate strange people, as you call them. If you had your way, I'd be as much of a old stick in the mud as Howard Littlefield. You never want to have anybody with any git at the house. You want a bunch of old stiffs that sit around and gas about the weather. You're doing your level best to make me old. Well, let me tell you, I'm not going to have... Overwhelmed, she bent to his unprecedented tirade, and in answer she mourned, Oh, dearest, I don't think that's true. I don't mean to make you old. I know perhaps you're partly right. Perhaps I am slow about getting acquainted with new people. But when you think of all the dear good times we have, and the supper parties and the movies and all. With true masculine wiles, he not only convinced himself that she had injured him, but by the loudness of his voice and the brutality of his attack, he convinced her also. And presently he had her apologizing for his having spent the evening with Tanis. He went up to bed well pleased, not only the master but the martyr of the household. For a distasteful moment after he had lain down, he wondered if he had been altogether just. Ought to be ashamed bullying her. Maybe there is her side to things. Maybe she hasn't had such a bloomin' hectic time herself. I don't care. Good for her to get waked up a little. And I'm going to keep free of her and Tannis and the fellows at the club and everybody. I'm going to run my own life. Two. In this mood, he was particularly objectionable at the Boosters Club lunch next day. They were addressed by a congressman who had just returned from an exhaustive three-month study of the finances, ethnology, political systems, linguistic divisions, mineral resources, and agricultures of Germany, France, Great Britain, Italy, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, and Bulgaria. He told them all about those subjects together with three funny stories about European misconceptions of America and some spirited words on the necessity of keeping ignorant foreigners out of America. Say, hey, that was a mighty informative talk. Real he-stuff, said Sidney Finkelstein. But the dissatisfied Babbitt grumbled, Four-flusher, bunch of hot air. And what's the matter with immigrants? Gosh, they aren't all ignorant, and I got a hunch we're all descended from immigrants ourselves. Now oh, you make me tired, said Mr. Finkelstein. Babbitt was aware that Dr. A. I. Dilling was sternly listening from across the table. 
Dr. Dilling was one of the most important men in the boosters. He was not a physician, but a surgeon, a more romantic and sounding occupation. He was an intense large man with a boiling of black hair and a thick black mustache. The newspapers often chronicled his operations. He was professor of surgery in the State University. He went to dinner at the very best houses on Royal Ridge, and he was said to be worth several hundred thousand dollars. It was dismaying to Babbitt to have such a person glower at him. He hastily praised the congressman's wit to Sidney Finkelstein, but for Dr. Dilling's benefit. 3. That afternoon three men shouldered into Babbitt's office with the air of a vigilante committee in frontier days. They were large, resolute, big-jawed men, and they were all high lords in the land of Zenith. Dr. Dilling the surgeon, Charles McKelvey the contractor, and most dismaying of all, the white-bearded Colonel Rutherford Snow, owner of the Advocate Times. In their whelming presence, Babbitt felt small and insignificant. "'Well, well, great pleasure. Have chairs. What can I do for you?' he babbled. They neither sat nor offered observations on the weather. "'Babbitt,' said Colonel Snow, "'we've come from the Good Citizens League. We've decided we want you to join.' Virgil Gunch says you don't care to, but I think we can show you a new light. The League is going to combine with the Chamber of Commerce in a campaign for the open shop, so it's time for you to put your name down. In his embarrassment, Babbitt could not recall his reasons for not wishing to join the League, if indeed he had ever definitely known them. But he was passionately certain that he did not wish to join and at the thought of their forcing him he felt a stirring of anger against even these princes of commerce. "'Sorry, Colonel. Have to think of it over for a little,' he mumbled. McKevely snarled. "'That means you're not going to join, George.' Something black and unfamiliar and ferocious spoke from Babbitt. "'Hey, look here, Charlie. I'm damned as if I'm going to be bullied into joining anything not even by you plutes.' "'We're not bullying anybody,' Dr. Dillon began, but Colonel Snow thrust him aside with, "'Certainly we are. We don't mind a little bullying if it's necessary. Babbitt, the GCL has been talking about you a good deal. You're supposed to be a sensible, clean, responsible man. You always have been. But here lately, for God knows what reason, I hear from all sorts of sources that you're running around with a loose crowd, and what's a whole lot worse—' You've actually been advocating and supporting some of the most dangerous elements in town, like this fellow Doan. Colonel, that strikes me as my private business. Possibly. But we want to have an understanding. You've stood in, you and your father-in-law, with some of the most substantial and forward-looking interests in town. Like my friends at the Street Traction Company. And my papers have given you a lot of good boost. Well... You can't expect the decent citizens to go on aiding you if you intend to side with precisely the people who are trying to undermine us. Babbitt was frightened, but he had an agonized instinct that if he yielded in this, he would yield in everything, he protested. You're exaggerating, Colonel. I believe in being broad-minded and liberal, but, of course, I'm just as much again the cranks and black skirts labor unions and so on as you are but fact is i belong to so many organizations now that i can't do em justice 
and I want to think her over before I decide about coming into the GCL. Colonel Snow condescended. Oh, no, I'm not exaggerating. Why, the doctor here heard you cussing out and defaming one of the finest types of Republican congressmen just this noon, and you have entirely the wrong idea about thinking over joining. We're not begging you to join the GCL. We're permitting you to join. I'm not sure, my boy, but uh, what if you put it off? It'll be too late. I'm not sure we'll want you then. Better think quick. Better think quick. The three vigilantes, formidable in their righteousness, stared at him in a taut silence. Babbitt waited through. He thought nothing at all. He merely waited, while in his echoing head buzzed, I don't want to join. I don't want to join. I don't want to. All right, sorry for you, said Colonel Snow, and the three men abruptly turned their beefy backs. Four. As Babbitt went out to his car that evening, he saw Virgil Gunch coming down the block. He raised his hand in salutation, but Gunch ignored it and crossed the street. He was certain that Gunch had seen him. He drove home in sharp discomfort. His wife attacked at once. Georgie, dear, Muriel Fink was in this afternoon, and she says that Chum says the committee of this Good Citizens League especially asked you to join, and you wouldn't. Don't you think it would be better? You know all the nicest people belong, and the League stands for— I know what the League stands for. It stands for the suppression of free speech and free thought and everything else. I don't propose to be bullied and rushed into joining anything, and it isn't a question of whether it's a good League or a bad League, or what the hell kind of a League it is. It's just a question of my refusing to be told a guy got to— But, dear, if you don't join, people might criticize you. Let them criticize. But I mean, nice people. Rats! On matter of fact, this whole league is a fad. It's like all those other organizations that start off with such a rush and let on they're going to change the whole works. Pretty soon, they peter out and everybody forgets all about them. But if that's the fad now, don't you think you— No, I don't. Oh, Myra, please quit nagging me about it. I'm sick of hearing about the confounded GCL. I almost wish I'd joined them when Verge first came around. Got it over. Maybe I'd have come in today if the committee hadn't tried to bully-rag me. But by God, as long as I'm a free-born independent American sit— Now, George, you're talking exactly like the German furnace man. Oh, I am, am I? Then I won't talk at all. He longed that evening to see Tannis Judique, to be strengthened by her sympathy. When the family were upstairs, he got as far as telephoning to her apartment house, but he was agitated about it when the janitor answered. He blurted, Never mind, I'll call later, and hung up the receiver. 5. If Babbitt had not been certain about Virgil Gunch's avoiding him, there could be little doubt about William Washington Ethorn next morning. When Babbitt was driving down to the office, he overtook Ethorne's car, with the great banker sitting in anemic solemnity behind the chauffeur. Babbitt waved at him and cried, "Morning." Ethorne looked at him deliberately, hesitated, and gave him a nod more contemptuous than a direct cut. Babbitt's partner and father-in-law came in at ten. "'George, what's this I hear about some song and dance you gave Colonel Snow, about not wanting to join the GCL? What the dickens you trying to do? Wreck the firm?' You don't suppose those big guns will stand for your bucking them and springing all this liberal poppycock you've been getting off lately, do you? Oh, rats, Henry T. 
You've been reading bum fiction. There ain't any such a thing as these plots to keep folks from being liberal. This is a free country. Man can do anything he wants to do. Of course, there ain't any plots. Who said they was? Only if folks got an idea you're scatterbrained and unstable, you don't suppose they'll want to do business with you, do you? One little rumor about your being a crank would do more to ruin this business than all the plots and stuff that those fool story writers could think up in a month of Sundays. That afternoon, when the old reliable Conrad Lighty, the merry miser, Conrad Lighty appeared, and Babbitt suggested his buying a parcel of land in the new residential section of Dorchester. Lighty said hastily, too hastily, no, no, don't want to go into anything new just now. A week later, Babbitt learned through Henry Thompson that the officials of the Street Traction Company were planning another real estate coup, and that Sanders, Torrey, and Wing, not the Babbitt Thompson Company, were to handle it for them. I figure that Jake Offutt is kind of leery about the way folks are talking about you. Of course, Jake is a rock-ribbed or old diehard, and he probably advised the Traction fellows to get some other broker. George, you got to do something, trembled Thompson. And in a rush, Babbitt agreed. All nonsense the way the people misjudged him, but still, he determined to join the Good Citizens League the next time he was asked, and in a furious resignation he waited. He wasn't asked. They ignored him. He did not have the courage to go to the League and beg in, and he took refuge in a shaky boast that he had gotten away with bucking the whole city. Nobody could dictate to him how he was going to think and act. He was jarred as by nothing else when the paragon of stenographers, Miss McGowan, suddenly left him. Though her reasons were excellent, she needed a rest, her sister was sick, she might not do any more work for six months. He was uncomfortable with her successor, Miss Havstad. What Miss Havstad's given name was, no one in the office ever knew. It seemed improbable that she had a given name a lover, a powder-puff, or a digestion. She was so impersonal, this slight, pale, industrious Swede, that it was vulgar to think of her as going to an ordinary home to eat hash. She was a perfectly oiled and enameled machine, and she ought each evening to have been dusted off and shut in her desk, beside her two slim, two frail pencil-points. She took dictation swiftly, her typing was perfect, but Babbitt became jumpy when he tried to work with her. She made him feel puffy, and at his best-beloved daily jokes she looked gently inquiring. He longed for Miss McGowan's return, and thought of writing to her. Then he heard that Miss McGowan had, a week after leaving him, gone over to his dangerous competitors, Sanders, Torrey, and Wing. He was not merely annoyed, he was frightened. Why'd you quit, then? he worried. Did she have a hunch my business is going on the rocks? And it was Sanders got the street traction deal. Rat sinking ship. Gray fear loomed always by him now. He watched Fritz Wellinger, the young salesman, and wondered if he too would leave. Daily he fancied slights. He noted that he was not asked to speak at the annual Chamber of Commerce dinner. When Orville Jones gave a large poker party and he was not invited, he was certain that he had been snubbed. He was afraid to go to lunch at the athletic club and afraid not to go. He believed that he was spied on, that when he left the table they whispered about him. Everywhere he heard the rustling whispers, in the offices of clients, in the bank, 
when he made a deposit, in his own office, in his own home. Interminably, he wondered what they were saying of him. All day long, in imaginary conversations, he caught them marveling. Babbitt? Why, I'd say, he's a regular anarchist. You got to admire the fellow for his nerve, the way he turned liberal and, by golly, just absolutely runs his life to suit himself. But say, he's dangerous. That's what he is. And he's got to be shown up. He was so twitchy that when he rounded a corner and chanced on two acquaintances talking, whispering, his heart leaped, and he stalked by like an embarrassed schoolboy. When he saw his neighbors, Howard Littlefield and Orville Jones, together, he peered at them, went indoors to escape their spying, and was miserably certain that they had been whispering, plotting, whispering. Through all his fear ran defiance. He felt stubborn. Sometimes he decided that he had been a very devil of a fellow, as bold as Seneca Doan. Sometimes he planned to call on Doan and tell him what a revolutionist he was. Never got beyond the planning. But just as often, when he heard the soft whispers enveloping him, he wailed, Good Lord, what have I done? Just played with a bunch and called down Clara's drum about being such a high and mighty sodger. Never catch me criticizing people and trying to make them accept my ideas. He could not stand the strain. Before long, he admitted that he would like to flee back to the security of conformity, provided there was a decent and credible way to return. But stubbornly, he would not be forced back. He would not, he swore, eat dirt. Only in spirited engagements with his wife did these turbulent fears rise to the surface. She complained that he seemed nervous, that she couldn't understand why he did not want to drop in at the little fields for the evening. He tried, but he could not express to her the nebulous facts of his rebellion and punishment. And, with Paul and Tannis lost, he had no one to whom he could talk. Good Lord, Tinka is the only real friend I have these days. He sighed, and he clung to the child, played floor games with her all evening. He considered going to see Paul in prison, but though he had a pale, curt note from him every week, he thought of Paul as dead. It was Tannis for whom he was longing. I thought I was so smart and independent, cutting Tannis out. And I need her. Lord, how I need her, he raged. Myra simply can't understand. All she sees in life is getting along by being just like other folks. But Tannis, she'd tell me I was all right. Then he broke, and one evening late he did run to Tannis. He had not dared to hope for it, but she was in and alone. Only she wasn't Tannis. She was a courteous, bow-lifting, ice-armored woman who looked like Tannis. She said, Yes, George, what is it? In even and uninterested tones, and he crept away whipped. His first comfort was from Ted and Eunice Littlefield. They danced in one evening when Ted was home from the university, and Ted chuckled, What's this I hear from Uni, Dad? She says her dad says you raised Cain by boosting old Seneca Doan. Hot dog, give him fits, stir him up. This old burg is asleep. Eunice plumped down on Babbitt's lap, kissed him, nestled her bobbed hair against his chin, and crowed, I think you're lots nicer than Howard. Why is it, confidentially, that Howard is such an old grouch? The man is a good heart, and honestly... He's awfully bright, but he never will learn to step on the gas, after all the training I've given him. 
Don't you think we could do something with him, dearest? Why, Eunice, that isn't a nice way to speak of your papa, Babbitt observed in the best Floral Heights manner. But he was happy for the first time in weeks. He pictured himself as the veteran liberal, strengthened by the loyalty of the young generation. They went out to rifle the icebox. Babbitt gloated, If your mother caught us at this, we'd certainly get our comeuppance. And Eunice became maternal, scrambled a terrifying number of eggs for them, kissed Babbitt on the ear, and, in the voice of a brooding abyss, marveled, It beats the devil why feminists like me go on nursing these men. Thus stimulated, Babbitt was reckless when he encountered Sheldon Smith, educational director of the YMCA and choir leader of the Chatham Road Church. With one of his damp hands, Smith imprisoned Babbitt's thick paw. While he chatted, Brother Babbitt, we haven't seen you at church very often lately. I know you're busy with a multitude of details, but you mustn't forget your good friends at the old church home. Babbitt shook off the affectionate clasp. Sheldy liked to hold hands for a long time, and snarled. Well, I guess you fellows can run the show without me. Sorry, Smith. Gotta beat it. Good day. But afterward he winced. If that white worm had the nerve to try to drag me back to the old church home, then the holy outfit must have been doing a lot of talking about me, too. He heard them whispering, whispering. Dr. John Jennison Drew, Jamaldi Frank, even William Washington Earthorn. The independence seeped out of him, and he walked the streets alone, afraid of men's cynical eyes and the incessant hiss of whispering. End of chapter 32